0: This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 6, for broadcast on the 15th of January, 2021. Coming up on Space Time, we look at what's new for 2021. Virgin Galactic forced to abort their latest test flight. And residents across Hawaii report a strange blue UFO. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. We're well into our new year now, so what's new for 2021? It will be another exciting year for space. There'll be maiden flights of at least three new spacecraft. And NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover is now getting ready to land on the red planet Mars. Perseverance will touch down on February the 18th in a river delta on the red planet's Jezero crater. Its mission is no less than searching for signs of past life on Mars. Also, Boeing will launch another unmanned orbital test flight of its trouble-plagued CST-100 Starliner spacecraft. That's slated for March the 29th, and if it works, Boeing could go for a manned test flight to the space station in June. Meanwhile, NASA's SpaceX Crew-1 astronauts, who are already on the space station, are slated to board their Dragon 2 capsule for their return to Earth in May. And they'll be replaced by SpaceX's Crew-2 mission a few days later. August will be a busy time around Venus, with both the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter mission and the BepiColombo mission performing simultaneous gravity-assist flybys. For astronomers, one of the big highlights of this year will be the long-awaited launch of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope aboard a European Space Agency Ariane 5 rocket from the Kourou spaceport in French Guiana on October 31st. James Webb's seen as a replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope, but looking even deeper and further back in time. November should see the launch of the world's most powerful rocket, NASA's new SLS or Space Launch System, carrying an Orion spacecraft on the unmanned Artemis 1 mission to the moon and back. The mission's designed to test Orion and the SLS launch system prior to returning humans to the lunar surface in 2024. 2021 will also see the maiden flights of two European Space Agency rockets. There's the Vega-C, a replacement for the existing Vega launcher, and the new Ariane 6, which will replace the current Ariane 5 launch vehicle. And ESA is also hoping to deliver a new robotic space arm to the International Space Station. Meanwhile, the United Launch Alliance are expected to finally retire their Atlas V and Delta IV rockets this year with the new Vulcan Centaur rocket slated to make its maiden flight. And it doesn't end there, as Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, explains.
1: Not expecting any aliens to land or planets to crash into each other or anything like that, but there's still... That there's you know of. That we know of, that well, that they're telling us at least, yeah. One I mean, after 2020, interesting...
0: do we really want a year of disasters?
1: Don't they all come in threes or something? So oh, uh, sure. we had three so far.
0: The Japanese are about to dump all the water from the Fukushima plant, all the radioactive water that was used in the Fukushima uh, meltdown, they're about to dump that into the ocean. So I guess Godzilla's coming up for 2021.
1: I was about to say Godzilla. um, Magnificent. That'll be great to see old Godzilla again. I haven't seen him since the 50s. And it was in black and white.
0: Okay, so what's happening in the skies then in 2021?
1: So Perseverance should be landing. So the the, the Mars mission should be getting there, shouldn't they? Yes, in February. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. So there you go. As usual, there'll be some really nice pairings of planets in the night sky. Now, when planets appear close to each other in the night sky, they're not actually physically close in space. I mean, they're they're hundreds of millions of kilometres apart. But just from a line of sight. Effect. They they do appear to come close together. It's a bit like if you were standing in the middle of track and field day, where people are running around, the, they're doing the eight hundred meters or something. People in the um, the slow lanes and people in the fast lanes, and sometimes they overtake each other. So if you're standing in the middle, then from time to time you'll see runners get close to each other or overtake each other, or some seem to go backwards and some seem to go forwards, depending on the different speeds. Some you know go backwards in relation to the ones going forwards, that sort of thing. That's what happens in the sky. So when you see planets close together in the sky, it's just a line of side effect. But there are going to be some nice ones. So in February you can have Venus. and Jupiter really close together, that's in about the middle of the month and towards the end of the month you're going to have Mercury, Jupiter and Saturn all quite close to each other. In May you're going to have Mercury and Venus not quite close to each other and then the next month you're going to have Venus and Mars quite close to each other. That'll look quite nice in fact because Venus is really big and bright and white and Mars is a reddish-orangey sort of colour. That should be a really nice contrast in colours. In May, something really good, you'll need a telescope for this, is between midnight and dawn, in Australian time at least, we're going to be able to watch the shadow or the shadows of four of the big moons of Jupiter go across the face of Jupiter one by one, one after the other in a sort of parade. So what happens is the moon, these moons are circling Jupiter and they're just casting a shadow out of the space and if they go in front of Jupiter, the shadow goes across Jupiter. And if you were, in inverted commas, standing on Jupiter, if you could, then you'd see the sun get blocked out. It'd be like a, an eclipse uh, as the as the moon goes in, in front of uh, of Jupiter and its shadow falls on the planet. So it's going to be really interesting to see. So and They look uh, people like, who like are,
0: dots, don't they, as they go across the face of yeah, Jupiter? Yeah,
1: just just looks like a round black um, dot, exactly. Um, so uh, you know, for people who are, want to stay up between midnight and dawn to watch these things slowly going across the face of the planet, that that be pretty good. There'll be people who do that, or there'll be people who just set up their automatic telescopes to to watch the whole thing, maybe video the whole thing. Uh, what else have we got? We've got lots of meteor showers as usual. We've got the Alpha Centaurids in in February. The name Alpha Centaurids, for instance, that means that um, the, the meteors appear to come from a direction in the sky near the star Alpha Centauri. Uh, Alpha is the brightest star, Alpha, uh, in the constellation Centaurus, Centaurids. So these would be the Alpha Centaurids. Then we've got the Eta Aquarid in May. That's in the, the constellation Aquarius. That's one of the best, probably the best meteor shower for people in the southern hemisphere at least and later in the year we've got the Orionids meteor shower in October and you've got the Leonids in November they're really good showers as well Um, very easy to see get out somewhere dark and lay on your back and look up and you'll see lots of meteors what have we got else we've got a couple of eclipses or a few eclipses coming up depending on what part of the world you're in so for those people who are in Australia New Zealand there's going to be a total eclipse of the moon on May the 26th and then in November there's going to be an almost total eclipse of the moon that's just almost totally fully eclipsed it. Not quite, so it won't go completely dark. And then uh, there's going to be a, a total eclipse of the sun um, a couple of weeks later that, that goes across the Earth's Antarctic region. So you'd have to be down there to see a totally the total eclipse. For uh, around the Australia region, well, you'd have to be in Tassie or uh, the very southern parts of Victoria, and there you would see a partial eclipse, but not much of it. You'll only get a, a, a short viewing of a that slice. because the eclipse will be slight. You get a, a slice of the partial eclipse, exactly. Yeah, so you, you'll you'll see just a little bit of the sun with a, with a little bit of a, a sort of a dark, dark curve on it. That's the uh, the moon moving in between. Plus there's going to be a few comets for those people who've got telescopes. Hopefully they'll uh, put on a good show. There's Comet pons winnecke Comet Durest, uh, and Comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. They're looking pretty hopeful. And fingers crossed, of course, that we uh, a bright comet might come along that we can all see with the naked eye. They, they don't come along too often, but um, that'd be really nice to cheer things up a little bit, do it.
0: That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And don't forget, if you're having trouble getting your copy of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine from your usual retailer because of the current lockdown and travel restrictions, you can always get a print or digital subscription and have the magazine delivered directly to your letterbox or inbox. Subscribing's easy. Just go to skyandtelescope.com.au. That's skyandtelescope.com.au and you'll never be left in the dark again. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Still to come... Virgin Galactic forced to cut short a planned test flight of their Spaceship 2 prototype, and Rocket Lab successfully launches its 17th Electron rocket into orbit. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Virgin Galactic have been forced to cut short a planned test flight of their Spaceship Two prototype in the skies above New Mexico following a computer failure. The winged spaceplane VSS Unity had been carried to its drop launch altitude of 44,000 feet by its twin fuselage White Knight Two mothership. However, right after its release, Unity's rocket motor briefly sputtered but failed to complete its initial sequence, the crew being forced to guide the spacecraft down to a runway landing. Virgin Galactic says an onboard computer system which monitors Unity's rocket motor suddenly lost connection, triggering a fail-safe scenario which halted the rocket engine's ignition. The test flight was intended to gather data on the spacecraft's cabin, as well as its stabilisers and flight control systems during boost. At this stage, Virgin Galactic is still hoping to carry its first space tourists on suborbital flights later this year. Unity, its predecessor Enterprise, a third vehicle now under construction which is expected to roll out by March, and a planned fourth vehicle which is yet to be built, are expanded versions of Bert Rutan's original scale composite Spaceship One space plane, which won the X Prize in 2004 by becoming the first privately built reusable manned space vehicle to reach 100 kilometers in altitude, the official start of space, and then repeat the achievement within two weeks. The flight profile see Spaceship 2 take off horizontally from a conventional runway mounted under the center spar wing section of the unique twin fuselage, four jet engine powered White Knight 2 mothership. During normal operations, White Knight 2 will climb to an altitude of around 15.5 kilometres, roughly 50,000 feet, at which point it drop launches Spaceship 2, which, after a few seconds of freefall, ignites its single hybrid rocket engine, accelerating the spacecraft over Mach 3, more than 4,000 km per hour. That rocket engine burn only lasts for 70 seconds before Miko or main engine cutoff but it provides enough momentum to allow the spacecraft to coast on the ballistic trajectory up to an apex altitude of over 100 kilometres. At this altitude, passengers are treated to stunning views of the Earth below. They see the curvature of the planet, the delicate thin blue line of its protective life-giving atmosphere along the horizon, all displayed in broad daylight under the velvet blackness of space, before the spacecraft re-enters the atmosphere. As it descends, its twin tail booms are raised into a feathered vertical position. This increases drag, helping to slow the rate of descent. At an altitude of around 23 kilometres or 70,000 feet, the twin tail booms are reconfigured back into their horizontal position, allowing the spacecraft to glide back to the surface for a conventional runway landing. Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two development program suffered a major setback in 2014 when VSS Unity's predecessor, the VSS Enterprise, broke apart in mid-air, killing one of the test pilots after the Telboom feathering system was released during the ascent to orbit. Releasing the feathering system during ascent allowed it to lock into place, placing huge dynamic loads on the airframe and causing the spacecraft to break apart. Despite the setback, around 600 people have already purchased their tickets, valued at around a quarter of a million dollars each, in order to ride Spaceship Two once it becomes operational. That means at least 100 journeys are planned. And, according to Virgin Galactic, another 400 people are already on the waiting list. This is space time. Still to come, Rocket Lab's latest Electron launch, and an unidentified flying object mesmerises the good people of Hawaii. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Rocket Lab has successfully launched its 17th Electron rocket into orbit. The flight from the company's launch complex 1 on New Zealand's Mahia Peninsula carried a synthetic aperture radar satellite into a 500-kilometre-high orbit. All stations
1: LD on mission. We are currently go for so auto-sequence start at T-minus two minutes. And at this time, I can confirm LD is go for launch. Ecclesiastes yeah, on 10. Hour.
2: Yeah. Locks load is complete. System is in recirculation. Stage one and stage two are at pressure. So you just activated.
1: Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six.
2: Five or 2 Electron has successfully cleared the pad at Launch Complex 1 and is on its way to orbit. We're at T plus 50 seconds into flight and we're quickly approaching Max-Q or Maximum Aerodynamic Pressure and that's the moment in Electron's ascent when the pressures on the vehicle are at their peak.
3: Approaching Max-Q and cleared Max-Q.
2: Stage 1 guidance is nominal. Stage 1 propulsion is nominal. Standby for Miko in approximately 30 seconds. Very soon the vehicle will shut down its Rutherford engines on the first stage to slow the rocket down before the first and second stages separate. This is a milestone during launch that we call main engine cutoff, or MECO. After the stage separation, the Rutherford engine on Electron's second stage will ignite to propel the stage to orbit. MECO confirmed.
0: Stage separation successful.
2: Stage 2 ignition confirmed. And we've had confirmation of Miko and ignition of the engine on Electron's second stage. In just a few seconds, the fairing atop Electron that protects the satellite during ascent will be jettisoned. Once Electron has cleared the Earth's atmosphere, there's really no need to keep the satellite enclosed in the fairing. So we jettison the fairing halves ahead of payload Very deployment to reduce exceeded. weight on the way to orbit. And that's a successful fairing jettison. So Electron's second stage is continuing to orbit as we approach a process unique to our rocket, a maneuver that that we call the Battery Hot Swap.
1: Stage two guidance nominal.
2: Electron continues as expected at a speed of 12,000 kilometers per hour at an altitude of 174 kilometers. Because our Rutherford engines are electric pump fed, they quickly drain the batteries we have on board to power Electron. So we switch out the batteries right at the optimal moment for a third new one and a seamless transition of power source. The Battery Hot Swap is scheduled to occur just under six minutes into the mission, and we're approaching that timing shortly. Battery jettison confirmed.
0: Hot swap successful.
2: Stage two propulsion nominal. We've had confirmation that battery hot swap was successful on Electron, and second stage propulsion is continuing nominally. FDS is safe. Our seventh launch of 2020. We're about a minute and a half away from separation of the kick stage from Electron's second stage. Electron is currently traveling at a speed of. 20,000 kilometers per hour at an altitude of 202 kilometers. This second stage carries the kick stage that the Strix Alpha satellite is attached to before the payload is deployed to its final orbit. We're now approaching stage two separation from the kick stage, but first the Rutherford engine on the second stage will throttle down before shutting off completely to allow for a clean separation. We call this SECO or second engine cutoff, and this separation of the stages will place the kick stage in an elliptical orbit around the Earth for a coasting period of around 40 minutes or so. After that, Kick stage's Curie engine will ignite to circularize the orbit around the planet before the payload is deployed. Consistent terminal, six seconds remaining. Seco confirmed.
0: Stage three separation confirmed. And nominal transfer orbit is achieved. The mission's payload was the Synspective Strikes Alpha Synthetic Aperture Radar Technology Demonstrator Satellite, which will image millimeter-level changes in the Earth's surface from space, independent of weather conditions day or night. Strikes Alpha is the first of a constellation of more than 30 satellites planned by Suspective. They'll collect data for urban development planning, construction and infrastructure monitoring and disaster response. The mission, called the Owl's Night Begins, brings to 96 the number of payloads now deployed by Rocket Lab. This is Space Time. Still to come, an unidentified flying object mesmerises people across Hawaii, and later in the science report, immune protection against COVID-19 reinfection good for at least eight months. All that and more still to come on Space Time. An unidentified flying object has mesmerized the people of Hawaii, sparking dozens of calls to police and the Federal Aviation Administration. The strange blue-colored elongated object seemed to slowly float down towards the ocean before disappearing from view. Witnesses say they then saw a second smaller light, this time white, coming in the same direction as the blue one. The FAA says there were no reports of overdue or missing aircraft in the area. The description sounds an awful lot like a missile launch. However, a tweet shortly after the sighting speculated as to whether it could have been an LED kite. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. New research has revealed that people infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's the virus which causes COVID-19, develop an immune protection against reinfection which is good for at least eight months. Could be a lot longer, but that's how long the tests have been running. The findings, reported in the journal Science Immunology, counters concerns that vaccines may only have a limited level of protection against the virus. Researchers at Monash University took samples from 25 COVID-19 patients from day 4 post-infection through to day 242, looking at antibody response. The authors initially found that antibodies against the virus began dropping off after just 20 days post-infection. But the patients continued to have memory B cells, which recognised key SARS-CoV-2 virus proteins eight months after infection. The deadly virus, which is now suspected of escaping from the Chinese government-run Wuhan Virology Lab a year ago, has now killed almost 2 million people globally and infected some 90 million others. A new study claims male infant circumcision may lead to social challenges in adulthood. Researchers from Denmark's Aarhus University compared 408 American men who had been circumcised within the first month of their lives and 211 American males who had not. The findings, reported in the journal Helion showed that men who had undergone circumcision as infants found it more difficult to bond with their partner and they were more emotionally unstable. However, the study didn't find any differences in terms of empathy or trust. Interestingly, infant circumcision was also associated with a stronger sex drive and lower stress threshold. The World Health Organization now estimates around 30% of all males are circumcised, with rates varying widely by country, from virtually none in Honduras and Japan, 6.6% in Spain, 10% in Germany, 14% in France, 20% in Australia, 21% in the United Kingdom, 32% in Canada, 45% in South Africa, 75% in the United States, and more than 90% in the Jewish homeland of Israel, with even higher rates in the Muslim world. Apart from cultural and religious reasons, there are major health benefits in circumcision. It means easier genital hygiene, a 10 times lower risk of urinary tract infection, a greatly reduced risk of getting some cancers, and a lower risk of contracting a range of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, the virus which causes AIDS. Also, female partners of circumcised males wind up having a decreased risk of things like cervical cancer, cervical dysplasia, HSV2, chlamydia and syphilis. A new study warns that almost 90% of all native animals will lose their habitats by 2050 as more and more land is cleared for farming to meet future human demands for food. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Sustainability, are based on advanced computer modelling. Scientists say proactive policies focusing on how, where and what food is produced are now urgently needed to reduce these threats. They suggest policies that increase agricultural yields, encourage healthier diets and reduce food waste need to be implemented.
2: What's the matter Skippy? You want me to come with you?
0: Well, it looks like some of those scenes in the kids' show Skippy the Bush Kangaroo may have been a bit closer to the mark than most people realised. A new study has found that animals that have never been domesticated, such as kangaroos, can intentionally communicate with humans. The findings by scientists at the University of Sydney challenges the notion that these behavioural patterns are usually restricted to domesticated animals like dogs, cats and horses. The research revealed that kangaroos gazed at a human when trying to access food in a closed box. The kangaroos used gazes to communicate only with the humans that had put the food in the box, instead of attempting to open the box themselves. That's a behaviour that's usually only expected from domesticated animals. A new survey has found that most New Zealanders are concerned about the spread of disinformation and fake news, but feel powerless to stop it. The study shows that 9 out of 10 Kiwis have reposted disinformation online because they didn't know it was fake. And more than half admit they're still not sure whether the information they're seeing on social media is fact or fiction. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the survey reported by scoop.co.nz found that most New Zealanders believe that disinformation does have the ability to greatly influence people's opinion.
3: Survey done of uh, New Zealanders about the inclination of people to believe in disinformation or misinformation or what we'll call it lies or misleading information. Fake
0: news, all that sort of stuff.
3: All that sort of stuff. Basically, the one of the overall things they found was that everyone would actually say everyone believed everyone else was uh, could be influenced by it. I think people said ninety one percent of people who were surveyed said other people can be greatly influenced by uh, misinformation. Whereas for me, or half of people said, yeah, I might be influenced by disinformation. So everybody's out of step except from <laughs> except for me is the argument here. Is this cognitive dissonance—the ability to uh, believe that um, everything else, but not me—I right? will sort of have two beliefs at the same time? Eight out of ten people in the survey would concerned about the spread of this information. At the same time, 55% believe they're powerless to stop it, which is pretty depressing. That's oh, so um, probably and true. Yes,
0: unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do. We just need to look at what happened in the recent US presidential election to yes. see exactly yes. how all that works. And there's misinformation. People believe it and media from one side or the other are pushing their line. They're not even bothering to look at the other side of the story. What have happened to just reporting real facts? Isn't that what journalism is supposed to be about?
3: It is supposed to be about that. The trouble is sort of Unfortunately, a lot of journalism now is not doing that one extra step of research to find out what the truth is. There are all sorts of issues. Basically, this, this is the dichotomy between what I think other people believe and what I think I believe. People think their own beliefs are sort of better founded than everybody else out there who's an idiot. And the thing is, everybody thinks that way. Therefore, you wonder about if anyone's not an idiot.
0: That's Tim Minden from Australian Skeptics. through our space time youtube channel and on facebook just go to facebook.com forward slash space time with Stuart gary and space time is brought to you in collaboration with australian sky and telescope magazine your window on the universe you've been listening to space time with Stuart gary this has been another quality podcast production from bytes.com